Welcome to Thinking Outside the Box with Gavin Rubinstein. Conversations between Gavin and the people he believes have trailblazed by thinking outside the box in their field, industry, or even just in his office. Ladies and gentlemen, I said that last time and it sounded pretty cool, so I think I'm going to start just every podcast like that. Welcome the man himself, uh, the yin to my yang, my brother, Four years older, four and a half years older. Four and a half. Business partner, confidant, protector, fucking the list goes on and on and on. Financial advisor, accountant, lawyer. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know where to stop with this guy. Jazz Rubenstein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So let's kick into a bit about your background. Your resume to me is the most or one of the most impressive resumes I've ever seen how did you start your professional life? Tell me a bit about school life and how did you end up working with someone like me? Look, at school, I never really took it seriously until the final year. In fact, most people don't know I failed year 11 and they wanted me to repeat the the, repeat the year itself. Right. Um, I didn't even know that. Yeah, it was a big wake-up call for myself. And uh, year 12, I finally started taking seriously, uh, became overnight very studious, switched on the uh, the discipline switch and did you know well enough in my HSC to get into uh, to university. You got 92, 93 or something like 94, that. 94, yeah. Pretty good. It's average. And then uh, went straight into to university. I had plans to go straight into corporate, but something got me aroused during uni in terms of wanting to, uh, to go to the military. Right. Uh, the military in Israel specifically. Mm-hmm. In terms of fitness and, and being healthy, it was a very core part of my life, still is today. Mm-hmm. And it's something I wanted to do uh, for many reasons. Uh, first and foremost, you know, Israel every day is fighting for its existence and survival. Us being Jewish and most of our, you know, extended family who were killed in the Holocaust 75 years ago, this is the only entity preventing that from reoccurring. So it was very important to me to contribute to that. Uh, I felt it was a good time in my life to do so. That was before or after uni, just remind me. Well, it was during uni. I actually wanted to drop out after year one. Right. Six months into my degree. Uh, studying? Studying, Bachelor of Business. Cool. At UTS, mm-hmm. uh, six months into it, I was 18 years old. Uh, I went to drop out. And no pa- breaks, no, no, no breaks. gap year, no, no Mykonos, no, 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 no I didn't know what Mykonos was, didn't even know where that was on the map, right? You're going to start to learn how different him and I are through this conversation. <laughs> okay, yeah. But I went to drop out. Our parents, specifically our mother, you know, she sat me down and she said, look, you need to get that piece of paper no matter what, because having education is something no one can ever take away from you. Um, And it's a very good fallback position. She was always big on the education. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of of amazing things both of our parents did, but I think the one thing just that was never a, it was just a not negotiable for mom was these guys have to be educated correctly. Yeah, you know, I will go without so they can. It was, it's interesting anyway. So Very true. Yep. So I agreed with her. I said, uh, I'll do whatever it takes to get this piece of paper. But the day I get it, you know, uh, the world is my oyster and I'm, I'm out. I'm off. And that was the agreement we had. So, so you fly to Israel, get the degree? So the day, the day or the, well, I, I've never, I never attended my graduation because literally a month after finishing my final exam, uh, I left everything behind. Parents, you, comforts of living in Bondi <laughs> Beach, girlfriend I had at the time. And uh, flew to a country I'd only been to once for a few weeks prior, <laughs> barely speaking the language, uh, effectively homeless, not understanding how things work over there to, I guess, uh, fulfill a dream which I had. Interesting. So you don't speak the language. You want to enter into an army 
where English is the second language. There's no English. Yeah. No English. Okay, yeah. right. Why? Like, I know you, you highlighted the reasons, but I mean- Yeah, look, I mean, call me old school, uh, but I'm a patriot. I believe in, you know, fighting for causes, fighting for something greater than yourself. And this was a cause that, you know, I, I picked up the flag and uh, I wanted to do exceptionally well in. So I made it my mission to first and foremost learn the language. Yep. Um, How I long did that take you? It took me initially five months as a civilian where I would study five hours a day in formal, formal like uh, course. Yep. Um, and then after study another two to three hours a night. So it was about eight hours a day I was spending for five months. Mm -hmm. And that got me, I guess, the basics. And then when I actually went, I was in, inducted into the military itself, I, I failed the Hebrew test uh, again. <laughs> so I had to do a, a language course within the army before I actually started my former army service, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. And that was another three months and that was all day, every day. But that was actually the best way to learn language. And I highly recommend to anyone, if you want to learn any language, whatever that language may be. Immerse yourself. Immerse yourself in it. Sit with people who don't speak English or your, your native language. And it actually forces you to pick up that language. And I found that very useful. So those three months I learned, you know, 10 fold what I learned in the five months because I was speaking you know English every night to some American girl in, in some bar or club right <laughs> makes sense and so the the unit you were in you know from my understanding is a special elite unit run me through kind of the numbers with regard yep. to the tryouts what yep. that looked like how many people got in just so yep. people get an understanding of yep. the, the caliber you had sure. to be at to well, I was the first Australian ever uh, selected for this specific unit uh, What's I it got called? into. It's called uh, Sayeret Golani, or in English, it's called the uh, Golani Reconnaissance Unit. Right. It's uh, equivalent to the US uh, Special Forces Green Beret. We actually did um, a lot of joint training with him where they flew their soldiers to, uh, to Israel, and we did a lot of uh, counterterrorism and urban warfare together. So that's where we really saw ourselves. It would have been nice to be you know, a Navy SEAL, but... Um, a lot of people know I'm not, I'm not a strong swimmer. So that was out of the question. I wouldn't have gotten through that. But look, I mean, it was really tough. So to, to give you an idea in terms of the caliber and the numbers involved, uh, about 400 guys tried out. And there was a, a week tryout, right, where they basically just broke you down. Um, How'd they break you down? Three areas, sleep deprivation, extreme weather, and starvation. So when you start tweaking with those basic human elements, oh, yeah. uh, you find very quickly that uh, things get tough. At the end of the week, there were a hundred of us left. 400 down to 100, Yeah, so right? 300 were gone. Of those 300, they either quit, so it got too tough, they rang the bell, just like you see in the movies. Uh, it wasn't for them, and they went to the regular infantry. Right. Or they were injured. So because what we were doing was very strenuous, they had a knee problem or back problem, whatever it may be. Or the commanders just saw that they were completely struggling and they just dropped them, right? Right. So the hundred went for an interview with two senior commanders. Was the interview in English or Hebrew? Well, this is interesting because... At this stage, although I could speak the language, I had trouble uh, expressing myself. Right. So I could understand and receive instructions, but I couldn't express myself properly or as well as I would have liked to in an interview situation. Which would be a concern for, for them, right? Because if you're in a unit and they're screaming out something in Hebrew yeah. and you miss, yeah. that could cost a life. So this is, this is serious. Yeah. yeah, it's very serious. I mean, it's not a game anymore. So no. the two guys who interviewed me who were actually reservists who would be in the unit just by absolute chance and fluke. One of them was wearing a hat that said Bondi Beach Australia on it. <laughs> now, what are the chances? I mean, it's like one in a million, right? So immediately I could make a connection with this guy. And I've always been really good with, you know, making connections with people and finding common interests, building that rapport. And within 10 seconds, I had them laughing. And I said, look, do you mind if I do this in English? And he said, no, go for it. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, dodgeable at there. So I had my interview and then you had to wait a week while I went through the whole uh, selection process, you know, who they were going to decide who would get through and who wouldn't. And I remember, you know, 400 guys 
sitting on a on a basketball court for the unit and they were calling out everyone's name one by one. And you didn't know if you were in the top 100 because they're only choosing 29 who would be selected. 29. So the, the selection process was 29 from 400. At this stage, yeah. 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 So, and the 29 who they called were at the end of them calling out everyone else. So you had to wait while they call out everyone else until they got to the last 29. Right. And I got into some type of, I don't know, emotional fit. And I was like shaking and like sweating, like I was like running around. Like this was, I felt the most important. And it was most important minutes of my life. Sure. And I remember going up to one of the officers who was, you know, standing behind us and he could see like the state I was in. And I said, you got to tell me, man, I can't wait another hour for this till I get in. And he just looked at me and like gave me a, a slight nod. And uh, I broke down into tears, mate. Like I was one of the most emotional moments of, of my life. Um, and no, no one saw, no one knew me, got to see me. Um, but I was, yeah, it was, it was a huge sigh of relief and, and joy and satisfaction. There's something kind of, you know, extremely liberating when you put in lots of work Absolutely. into anything, you sacrifice lots, dedication, and and get that win and that reward. It's one of my personal favorite feelings ever. And it was. Amazing. It was. It's Amazing. definitely so, a highlight. So 429 and Correct. then? Correct. So then, then the real work actually started because if you think about it, I only done a week in the army, but right. I had to get through the training. So just like the SEALs or any other special ops unit, you actually have to get through the training program itself. Sure. Our training program is well recognized as being one of the toughest in the world on, on land base specifically. And it involves all you know types of uh, environments, snow, desert, forest, I mean, you name it, boulders. And we had to complete the 16-month training program, which by far has been the most most challenging thing I've ever had to face and will ever have to face. Mentally, physically. Give it's me a like mental what? thing. So you, you watch the movies and you see soldiers and you see Rambo and you think, you know, it's some staunch guy, you know, who's like taking on the world, but special <laughs> forces isn't like that. Like the average guy, you wouldn't even know, you know, he's special ops because the way it works is that everyone has a unique role. They're a specialist in a certain field and you get the synergy from the team, uh, which is a very small team working uh, coherently and very efficiently to realize that efficiency. And that's what makes it so effective, right? And it's big mental, right? It's 80%, 85% mental. I'm not saying what we did wasn't physically demanding. Sure, sure. It was, but mentally when someone's saying for 16 months, you're not going to sleep a Thursday night, you could <laughs> you could be, be able to bench press 150 kilos, but to get through that is something else, right? So what was like the most grueling or one of the most grueling exercises they put you through that got you close to breaking point, but you persevered through? So at the end of the 16 months, and just to quantify that for you, there were 29 of us, like I said, at the end of it, there were nine of us left. Okay. So 400 essentially to nine. Correct. And out of those nine, you were the only non-Israeli. Yes. I was the only, I was the only non-Israeli who was selected for the training for the unit. Right. So as far as I'm concerned, the interview can end there in terms <laughs> of like, you know, in, in terms of demonstrating, you know, how, how together and strong your mindset is, but we got a, a bit more to cover off on. So let's yeah. continue. So just to, to, give you an example, uh, the hardest thing we did was at the end, think of it as your final exam, right? You've done the 16 months uh, training, very uh, strenuous. And, and to, to give you an explanation how that worked is your individuality was stripped away from you. You couldn't make any decisions. You were effectively a number. Someone would tell you when you were going to eat, when you were going to shit, when you were going to sleep. Like you couldn't pay me enough to go through something like this. Like he, he, like really you would have to come up with a crazy crazy number and even then I, I don't think there I mean everyone's got a number for something but it's just wild don't get me wrong there were 
quite a few stages where I broke down mentally. Right. I think we all did, all of us who got through, but me particularly, because it was that much more difficult for me because I wasn't from the place. I didn't speak the language sure, as well. Yourself. I didn't have family there. I had a family who adopted me. So I didn't have the comforts of going home and, you know, mom looking after me like everyone else had. And for the listeners who don't know, if you live in Israel, by the time you turn 18, correct me if I'm wrong, you have to go to correct, the army. Correct. So there, was no, there was no one telling you, you have to do this. You're like, hey, I'm... I feel like a patriot or I am a patriot. Well, being, being said, <laughs> I'm going to go to the Israeli In fairness, army. the unit was strictly volunteer. Like you didn't have to be in that elite unit. You could just be right, regular okay. infantry. So everyone there was, you could say, technically a volunteer to do what we did. Right. But yeah, look, it was, it was definitely a lot more uh, difficult for me. And there were many times when I broke down and wanted to quit. And I had a mentor in, in the unit um, today. is one of my closest friends. He was a, a captain in the, in the Israeli Navy SEALs. Shy? Yeah, shy. He was an absolute beacon of light for me during my time in the army, took me under his wing, uh, gave me a great book to read when I was going through the toughest part of the training, which is called Area 100, which basically we lived in the forest for four months <laughs> and they basically fucked us up as much as they could. And that's where most people ended up dropping out of the training. We lost eight guys in one night from the 29 in one single night. Why? What happened that night? Uh, they, I don't want to go into too much, but they, they broke us down uh, completely, right? During that time, you know, he gave me a book to read. I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, Man's Search for a Meaning by Viktor Frankl, guy who got through the Holocaust um, and came out extremely positive. And if you're ever going through any difficulty in your life, I strongly and highly suggest you read this book because it is life-changing. And so you're in the army. What was your biggest lesson from it all? Like top, top lesson you took from, from that whole experience? Because you, you finished army, you served there for another two years. Yeah. So all up three yeah, years? Yeah, correct. And what, what was your biggest lesson? The biggest lesson is, is that you can do anything you put your mind to. And when the body starts to give up and thinks it's not possible, the mind can go that much stronger so or that much further. Mamba uh, mentality. Yeah, no, ab <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, today, you know, when people throw things at me, you know, I just, it's, it's nothing. It's a breeze compared to what I've been through, right? Right. We finished training and literally the day after training, you become active. When I say active, you start doing uh, missions. We were obviously a very elite unit. So all the missions we did were uh, covert. Can't discuss them today, obviously, uh, but they were within Israel and beyond Israel's lines. So that, yeah, that's what we we're dealing with. So I finished out my service there doing these missions. And the day I was discharged, I flew back to Australia. Okay. So you were discharged. So you served all up three years, come back to Australia. And then what do you do? Well, I was a little bit lost in terms of what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to make money. I had to make money because in the army, in the army, I was earning 450 US dollars a month. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't really get ahead like that. You can barely live. Although you do, you're on the army, so a lot of your costs are covered. Um, Why do you want to make money? Because like, I don't know if people know or whether they've heard or not, but you know, you're not the sort of guy like you couldn't give a shit about, you know, what shirt you wear, what car you drive. You know, you you, you definitely look after yourself and your body, and you 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 don't live like a like a bum. Let's let's be honest. But none of that stuff interests you. So why did you think at that point I want to make money? Well, I'm not I'm not materialistic. That's certainly true. Uh, but I certainly didn't want to have the insecurity. I guess our parents have, and you've spoken about this a lot before in terms of you know looking for that next dollar, that next paycheck. I really wanted to set myself up from an asset point of view. Right and have that passive income that everyone strives to get. But you obviously need a base and foundation before you can get there, right? So it was important to me to make money. And, and just being said, you know, before I left the military, they tried to recruit me into intelligence 
okay, the Mossad. And I turned it down strictly from a financial perspective. It didn't make any sense to me. I felt like I'd given, you know, my time to the country and the cause and I didn't want to pursue a career down that path. How old are you at this time when you come home? 24. 24, you want to make money, what do you do? Well, I was already three years behind on my peers. Um, and this was one of the things when I wanted to go over that a lot of people said to me, oh, you're going to be three years behind. You're never going to catch them. They're going to have all this corporate experience. You're going to be disadvantaged. That was clearly false. And don't get me wrong. 99% of people, including Israelis, said I'd never get to the unit I, I got into and would do what I do. So another lesson there is if you believe in yourself and you believe in what you can achieve, fuck, what the, fuck the, the noise and the haters. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I came back and I uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had the degree, the Bachelor of Business under my belt, and I actually reached out to a few people I knew and they got me you know, an entry level uh, position as a financial planner here. Within two weeks, I realized it wasn't for me. And the reason being is that I spoke to the senior uh, financial planner in the, in the business and I said, no, tell me after five to seven years, how much can you actually earn here? Like if you do really well. And she said to me, oh, if you do exceptionally well and you give it your all, you'll be earning 120,000 a year. This is back in 2000 and where we're now, 2008. Right. And I knew then and there that this wasn't for me because 120 grand, you know, it doesn't excite me and wasn't my, wasn't my why. Sure. So I had to look for an alternative solution. Mm-hmm. And there was someone who I used to train with down at Bondi who had been a commodity trader, who lived uh, his professional life abroad. He'd done exceptionally well. You know, high worth individual had gotten where I hoped I could get to one day in terms of his uh, professional career and his earning uh, abilities. And he took me under his wing and he really meant- I don't meant, think anyone gets to his earning abilities. Well, if you get to 10% <laughs> there or 5% there, I think you're doing pretty well. I'll take 2%. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean to that guy? Um, look, and he, he um, you know, had no reason to necessarily do it, but he took me under his wing and he guided me for, for a whole year and really got me into the industry he was in um, in terms of opening up doors and getting me in front of people so I could pursue being a commodity trader, which is where I wanted to be because of you know the earning potentials. And I felt that I was very suited to it because it's definitely not the nine to five. And that's what happened. And when I went for my first interview that he lined up, the feedback was that I was too military, uh, too, gu- sense. too, yeah, too <laughs> rigid, too gung-ho. And the recommendation was, we like you, but you need to get more corporate. And to get more corporate, we want you to do your MBA. Which is a master's. Master of and Business Administration. And you're still working full-time as a yeah, financial I was, I was working, wealth planner. Yeah, I was working from 9 to 5.30. I mean, nothing serious. Yeah. Um, just a standard standard entry-level position. So literally the next day, as soon as um, V gave me back this feedback, I enrolled in my MBA again at UTS here. And I did that. I worked full-time. I studied full-time. And my routine was, you know, I guess what most people would say is pretty um, extreme, but, you know, Moderation is definitely not for me, mm-hmm. um, and being average is not for me. And mm-hmm. I, I don't follow the crowd. I never have mm-hmm. lead my own path. Very mm-hmm. important. So my routine was literally getting into work nine to five thirty, getting into university by six, lectures from six p.m. to nine p.m. three nights a week, group work usually till about ten thirty at night. Got home, had dinner, you know, just after eleven, studied till about one one thirty a.m. Getting a bit like every you know, night. Just thinking about that, and then was up at ten to six to train the next day, making sure I was at the beach at six, and I did that for two years consecutively. Training and training in the beach has been like your lifestyle forever. Yeah, where did that come from? Came from the army. So I was doing heavy weights before the military. Like yeah. I was a gym guy. I could only train the gym. And then being in the military, obviously, you're not lifting weights, right? You're around the field. So, you know, I adopted that whole, you know, calisthenics, body weight exercise uh, routine, Mm -hmm. which worked really well for me. 
And that's where, you know, I took up that hobby and I've become part of the furniture together with my very good friend, uh, Dmitry Moscovich down at uh, Bondi Beach. You started to make some pretty big noise doing this exercise called muscle up. Yeah. Or muscle ups or. Yeah, muscle ups. So. <laughs> Tell me about that. And by the way, where'd you get time to do that? Well, I was actually in the army. I remember we were between missions on, on base and we had obviously a chin up bar there because they want us to, to keep fit and in shape. And one of the guys in the unit said, oh, can you do the, this exercise? Like we didn't even know what it was called. And he did five and. I wasn't even sure if I could do it. And I just tried to copy him and I did seven. And everyone right. was like, wow, that's amazing, amazing. So that's where I first did it. And when I came back to uh, Bondi in Sydney, started doing more of it at the beach. And one of the guys I trained with said, mate, you should actually try it for the Guinness World Record. And I'm like, there's no way. There's no way that I'll what be doing- What was the record at the time? At the t- well, I had to check it. At the time it was 15. I remember when you videoed you breaking the record. I was watching, it was down yeah, in Bondi, right? It was, done. it was done down in Bondi in 2000, January 2010. So you broke the Guinness Book World Record for most amount of muscle ups in 2010. How many did you do? I did. So the first time I did, I did 23 and I told the crowd that I failed because I knew I could do more and I wanted to solidify my position for as long as I could. Right. That makes sense. Right. So I did it the following day and hit 25. Okay. And that was the number in the book for the next eight years. No one could beat it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. Back to getting your master's, once you got your master's. Yeah. So literally the day of graduating university, again, I never went to the graduation because I flew overseas again. Right. Um, to go where? I was offered a employment uh, with a company called Noble, which is one of the world's largest uh, physical commodity traders at the time. Um, and so you, was, got in, you, got in, you got your master's, yeah. you had your Guinness Book World Record, yeah. you had a degree behind you, three two years degrees, military, yeah. two degrees military yeah. experience, and then yeah. you go, all right, now I'm just going to fly. Yeah, now I need to make some uh, cash of, okay, money. Um, and where did you fly to? Uh, my first position was with them in Singapore. How old were you? 27. So 20, So you didn't start making money till you were 27? No, 27, my starting salary was 48,000 Singapore dollars, which at the time was trading below the AUD, the Aussie dollar. So I was probably on the salary equivalent of 44,000 uh, Aussie. It's a lesson in that too, right? Because a lot of people kind of get to a point, they're like, well, if I don't start young, I'm never going to make it. It's bullshit. 27 is not old, right? Let's not, but it's not. It's not straight out of high school, right? You know, for my time at this firm, which was a circa eight years, right. um, I worked like that was the only thing that mattered to me. And you lived where? Well, I started in Singapore. They quickly uh, relocated me to Jakarta, right. Indonesia, right. where I was trading uh, thermal coal. Right. And from there, I spent three and a half years. The company wanted me to stay there and, you know, spend, I guess, my professional career there. But Indonesia, for those who have been there, and I'm not talking about Bali, I'm talking about Jakarta, a city of <laughs> 20 million people, absolute no, no, chaos. No, no Mississippi? Um, no well, potato head? Well, they actually, <laughs> they, they actually have the equivalents in Jakarta, but it's very different, right? I mean, Jakarta, for those of you who don't know, you actually can't walk on the street. There's no footpath. The pollution's terrible. So I spent three and a half years there and I turned around to, uh, to, to the CEO and I said, look, this isn't for me. Um, I, I can't keep living here. You know, I, I was actually, a girl came who I was seeing at the time came to, to visit me and she lasted all of, I think, four or five months. And she came back to Australia and said, you've got to choose me or the job. It's an easy decision <sighs> Yeah, because um, I was so focused at the time. And then they basically offered me, you know, either move to Johannesburg in South Africa or Moscow in Russia. Oh. And I just looked at the climate and said, there's no way I'm going to go to Moscow <laughs> and Russia and uh, live out those winters. And and we also had some extended family in, in Johannesburg. So right. it made sense at the time. So Singapore, Jakarta, Johannesburg, yeah. And then? First thing I did when I got to Johannesburg, even before um, I got on my visa uh, in line or got my driver's license, was get a gun license. And so I got... <laughs> 
So within two weeks, I was walking around with a nine millimeter with <laughs> oh hollow bullets, um, hollow point bullets. Why? Uh, Why get a gun? Because uh, it's one of the, it's the, one of the most dangerous cities in the world, and uh, I had to protect myself. I just felt that you know. Look, I mean, don't if, talk shit. You always wanted to just get a gun again. You had the army. You missed having <laughs> a gun. You wanted to carry it. Around. No, but also, look. I mean, if you're if you have the training I've had, um, having having a weapon by your side is it makes you yeah you feel confident with it and gives you that extra layer of protection, right? So that sure. was important for me. I mean, those of you who haven't lived in Johannesburg, I'm talking about you know every single house. Uh, surrounded by electric fences. Uh, people get hijacked all the time on the roads. Uh, people get robbed and shot all the time. It's it's pretty much uh, you know lawless no man's land to an extent, right? right? So there was definitely a need for me to have one. Um, and you stayed there for how long? Two and a half years. Met your now wife who Correct. lives with you in Australia. Correct. Shout out to Lindsay. Love you. Um, and then you went Joburg to where? So we moved to London. Yeah. And yeah, again, we picked up our life. We moved to London. What a full life, by the way. Like what a- It's been what, a great ride. What great experiences, you know, yeah. just, just to go through all of this. London too? So we stay in London a year. Look, I didn't like London, like the climate. Like I don't like the cold climates. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, I was working, call it 14, 16 hour days, you know, six days a week. Uh-huh. Um, so it didn't really matter to an extent where I was based because an office is an office. And not to forget, I was on an international flight every two to three weeks throughout this entire process, right? And not traveling to great places like Mykonos, I was traveling to places like uh, the DRC, the Congo, Nigeria, <laughs> Rwanda, Saudi Arabia. Well, I made you come to Mykonos with me once. You did, I remember you I flew- a, in, You had a lot of fun. I flew into Italy for a weekend to see you, I remember that, I remember. for a night. I was, yeah. um, where was Capri. I? I was going to Capri. Yeah. He was in the Congo and I was in Capri. <laughs> hey brother, come around for a weekend and come and hang. Yeah, it was great, I remember that. So we spent a full year in London and then we moved to Dubai. Which, Love uh, Dubai. I came to visit you there. Big fan of Dubai. Yeah. Dubai, great lifestyle. It's a great environment. You don't pay any income tax. Huge uh-huh. plus. Amen. Huge Wonder plus. Wonder what that would be like. Well, it's great. You get your pay slip, which is one line. Gross salary paid to your account. So, so. Australians don't know anything about that. All right, so I got one question for you. Yeah. Well, you talk about, and just to summarize the resume and tell me if I miss anything, really good result, high school certificate, degree in business, Guinness Book World Record, muscle up, commodities trainer, Masters, vast experience, making a lot of money. Yeah, working your absolute ass off. Though. Don't, working, don't get me wrong, we gave our pound of flesh. No, hundred percent. But why the fuck did you get into real estate? <laughs> <laughs> like, ex- I, explain that to me because, yeah. look, I know I'm a very convincing man. <laughs> that you are. And the best deal I ever did was getting you to join. That's all good. You got to explain that to me because with a background like that, intelligence like yours, making good money, why real estate? Okay. So I thought, you know, Noble, the commodity firm I was at would be my forever job. I thought I'd do it 15 years there and then come back to Sydney and well, I thought Sydney and retire and that would be it. I quickly realized that wasn't the case. As the company was going through an internal restructure due to uh, certain circumstances and they actually closed down the Dubai office and they wanted me to move to Hong Kong for various reasons. Uh, I didn't want to live in Hong Kong. Before I moved back to Sydney, I took some time off. I felt it was important to reset and take a effective uh, sabbatical, right? right Just right. to refresh my mind because I've been going so hard for so long. So the first thing I did was packed a backpack, said goodbye to my girlfriend at uh, Dubai airport. And I flew to a remote part of Western China <laughs> um, where I climbed a ma- <laughs> I swear, this, this guy is not talking shit. I remember him doing that. I've never actually really spoken to him about details, you know, but he actually did this. Yeah, for a month, I didn't have access to my phone, to email, to messages. What the fuck were you doing there? I joined a Shaolin monk monastery <laughs> where I lived with 
I lived with the Shaolin monks uh, for a month on on a mountain in the middle of uh, Western China, very close to Tibet. Why? Because I felt it would be a great uh, mental detox. Um, I thought it'd be great just to, you know, relax for a little bit, read. I mean, I read in a month something like eight books, eight thick books. I haven't read eight books in my life. Yeah, it it was great from that perspective. And all you did was train six hours a day with the monks and then you had the rest was free time where you were just, you had nothing else to do, right? So you just meditate. You're in the mountains. It was beautiful. They grew all their own food. Language I struggled with because I don't speak any Mandarin, but uh, the experience itself, you know, anyone who just wants that reset, I couldn't recommend it more uh, more highly. So and your did, biggest and your biggest lesson from that experience was what? You know, it was weird that I couldn't up until that experience I couldn't remember the last time I had a dream, a vivid dream, and within being there for a few days, I had vivid dreams every single night, multiple dreams. And I actually kept a journal and I wrote a journal entry every single day about these dreams and the experience I was going through. So I have a journal that actually kept track of this entire month. Uh, which was really interesting. So it actually did give me that mental detox that I needed. Instead of checking your email, getting, you know, 100, 150 emails a day that need answering ASAP, um, <laughs> I didn't get one email in a month, which was, you know, going from one extreme again to another was actually quite uh, liberating. Initially right. it wasn't, I struggled, like I, I, was, I was panicking. And so what did you learn from that? I learned the importance of switching off. But no, you didn't because you don't switch off today. So I I was forced in, it is important. I was forced into the environment. I didn't have an option. There was no phone. There was no, there was no one like, you know, smashing me on the phone. Um, There was no deal to be done. It was just meditate, relax. And I felt that that was important, particularly at that point in time. So then I came down from the mountain, got out of China, actually met my, so my wife had flown back to Africa, South Africa. She then met me in Dubai and we flew to the US and we spent another month driving Route 66, the mm-hmm. entire route beginning to end and Pacific One on the um, the West Coast of the US, which for those of you who don't know, you start in Chicago, you end in LA. So it takes you through the whole like Midwest, uh, which was really interesting. Probably the best holiday I've ever had. Wow. And we were living in, you know, $50 uh, motels every night. Love that. But it was, it was really cool from an experience, eye-opening point of view. Yep. And then I started, you know, interviewing for my next gig. Mm-hmm. And it made sense to stay in the industry because it was what I was good at. And I had interviews in, uh, in Luxembourg. Like uh, finance industry. In, in commodity trading. Commodities, right, yeah. right, right. So I had interviews in Luxembourg where that flew me there. Interviews in, uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. Interviews in uh, Johannesburg, which I was based in at the time. I used it as a base to stay with her family where I could find my next move. And I had interviews in Sydney as well. Mm-hmm. And of the four uh, employment contracts that were given to me, I chose the Sydney contract, even though it was paying the least substantially because I wanted to work my way back to Australia, back to Sydney. Why? At this stage, you know, I'd spent most of my, the vast majority of my professional career away. So I was more foreign than I guess I was, you know, Australian to an extent, right? And I miss being around family and friends and, you know, having, I guess, more of a, not more of a lifestyle, but having somewhat of a lifestyle as opposed to 100% dedicated to work. I could be 80% dedicated to work and have a 20% lifestyle. So I felt that that was important um, as well. And, and don't get me wrong, I'd set myself up financially whereby, you know, I felt I was at a stage where I could have, uh, you know, returned to Sydney. Um, comfortably, because comfortably, eight years yeah. you're making really good income. You're Correct. not paying tax. You're Correct. saying, hey, Gav, I want to buy this property. I'm going to an auction. You're like, Gav, I yeah. want to buy that property and we're building. Yeah, well, at that stage, I, I purchased quite a few properties and I'd never seen any of them. You had gone <laughs> in for me and done all the deals. I just sent over the cash and, and that it's was a good it. Good arrangement. It was a great arrangement. It was a great arrangement. 
but yeah, look, I, I worked my way back to Sydney, came to Sydney and took a gig in Sydney in corporate finance and just realized, you know, being in Australia, I didn't think it was for me. You know, it was too slow. Yeah. Um, the pace was too slow. I didn't feel uh, stimulated. Mm-hmm. I felt the, you know, the caliber of people here, just, they just wanted to chill and cruise. That's Australian mentality. It man. is Australian mentality. And it wasn't for me, right? Um, so I worked my way out of Australia, whereby I was given another contract to relocate back to Singapore. Right. To effectively, you know, do what I was doing before yeah. um, in commodity trading. But then that's quickly changed when this whole thing transpired with you. Right. What transpired? Well, I remember you called me up one day. Uh, it was in May 2019, if I get those dates right. And you said to me, I'm leaving uh, Double Bay. Mm. I need your help because <laughs> I can't do this on my own. Right. And then you and I were obviously, you know, uh, talking about how that may look, but we quickly realized, you know, given, you know, your strengths and weaknesses complement my strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And we thought the formula and the synergy again, like in the special forces would be fantastic. Right. So I decided to stay in Sydney and uh, open and run TRG with you. Any regrets? None whatsoever. It's Beautiful. been a great journey. It's only been, you know, less than 24 months. Yeah, that was a loaded question, by the way. Um, <laughs> and define your role, because I've got an idea in my mind, but what would you call your role? And look, in like, in one sentence yeah. or less. Uh, I can't do that. But look, I can. Just, if, can I try? Yeah, try. So I would say you are the protector of TRG. Period. I, I accept that. Period. And do you know why to me that was fitting? Since as long as I could remember, you protected me. Mm. You know, so so my my kind of memories of of school, we had a couple of years together at school. Correct. And you know, I've, I've never really been in fist fights. And <laughs> let's let's face it, I'm I'm a lover, not a fighter. But I think two of the only fights I've ever had, my memory is being dropped by someone, <laughs> and by the time I put my head up six or seven guys holding you back and whoever dropped me in the corner like with blood spraying out of their face on, <laughs> on like on like two occasions that happened and so to me like you know that is just innately what you do but all around protector of TRG I accept that let's break it down and reverse engineer what does it look like so look I mean I'm not a real estate agent as look it's just clear from this conversation it's the first office I've ever worked in was my own office so really it was a it was a you know, a blank sheet uh, where we could build the foundations and get it right from the start, right? And in terms of building this business, it's always been, you know, my aspiration to build a business that is, you know, the Goldman Sachs of real estate. So the top 1%, the creme de la creme. High standards. Exceptionally high standards. Striving for excellence. Absolutely. So it allowed us to do that. And my role essentially is everything that's non-listing sales, but everything else in terms of, you know, finance, accounting, the legal side of things, the operational side of things, uh, the recruitment to an extent, and um, which I do share with you. Majorly. The maintenance of the agents who work there, yep. you know, sharing the load with them. Absolutely. Um, well, I see there's one big family, right? So I, I'm extremely protective of our agents. One thing you'll know about me is I'm an extremely loyal uh, person and, you know, all the directors in our business, um, I see them as family and I'll go to war uh, with them, protecting them. And that's how I operate day to day that I am waking up and going into battle. Mm. You know, that's that's essentially the role. Um, it works really well because you and I stay in our separate lanes. Uh, we both know what we're doing. In fact, some weeks I don't even speak to you. And I, although I see you, you know, we're just so focused on what we're doing. We're running around uh, just doing the best we can for the business. And it works extremely well. 
100%. I noticed that completely. And what's been the biggest challenge? Because it's just such a, I mean, there are definitely similarities, but the different industries completely. So sure. what was the biggest adjustment for you coming from one to the other? The caliber of the industry itself for real estate, because there are no barriers to entry for anyone. I'm not talking about specifically real estate agents, although they're certainly in the in the picture as well in the mix. Just the whole industry in terms of stakeholders, the caliber's low. Mm. Um, and the- Versus a high caliber industry. You come from, you've got to be super educated. Correct. Yeah, right, right, right. Correct. So I've, I've struggled with that and I struggle. Look, my biggest issue with people is some, when someone's incompetent. I, I can't handle that. I understand people make mistakes, but incompetence is something I've got zero tolerance for. Yeah. And every day the guys will tell you that I'm on the phone screaming at some useless tool uh, because they keep making the same mistake over and over again. You know, I just can't accept that. So, you know, I I give excellent service and I strive for excellence and I expect everyone who not only works with me, but our suppliers to, you know, uphold the same standards. I think people are starting to realize and, and we're relatively new, so it will take longer, but I think people are starting to realize that our business is based off of fire much more than it's based off of flash, Absolutely, which I think can often be the the misconception. Agreed. And I think, you know, personally, just what I've struggled with is I came from uh, no staff turnover. So my core team where I was working before is still with me today versus now opening a business and, you know, trying to help the other associate directors build teams in and around them to kind of follow my blueprint, you know, has presented challenges. And one of those being turnover, because we're seeing some of these younger people come and some of these younger people go really, really quickly. Sure. And it's like, you know, one of these videos I watched just a couple of weeks ago, which was just you know, one of my favorite pieces of content I've consumed to this day. You got Jay-Z there and he's talking about people today focus on the end result rather than focusing on the process. Big mistake. And I think a lot of people kind of look at maybe some of the content that I put out or we put out and think, hey, that's what real estate is. Versus you didn't see the 12 years prior to sacrifice work and commitment that created that end result. And you're trying to create the end result. They weed themselves out pretty quickly, don't they? Because we don't we don't tolerate that. No, and then again, look, we're very transparent in all the interviews we have on the recruitment front. You know, just saying, you know, we don't believe where you're sitting in that seat is for ninety nine percent of all people. It's for the people who want to work hard, who strive for success, who don't want the nine to five. I always say, if you want to do nine to five, go around the corner. It's for the people who want to be the top one percent in their field, right? And that is not for everyone, and that's fine. We, we accept that, and that's why you know people see the social media, they see the Instagram, they see the, the Amazon TV show that's shortly coming out. And they believe it's all just one big party and it's one big, you know, glamorous uh, gathering, which they certainly find out within a few days that the guys are putting in the hours and the work and they struggle and they weird themselves off very, very quickly. What I love most about it is like, if you're not performing, you become like a leper. You do. And that office is like the front girls pull you up on it. Yep. The internal teams pull you up on it. Sure. Management pulls you up. And and that, and like you say, it's, it's not for everyone. Yeah. So usually they just, you know, pull up their hand and they say, look, it's not for me. I prefer doing my nine to five. I want to be average. I want to be earning, you know, 60, 70 grand for the rest of my life. Good luck to you. hundred percent. What's your favorite thing about the office and your worst or your least favorite thing about the office? Favorite thing, uh, the caliber of people we do have in there. God, we got some good people. Yeah. Yeah. We honestly have. Great people. Who've like, become, it, some of them become my very close friends. Like, it, it's a cult. Yeah. And it's culture. Yeah. And it's healthy. A hundred percent. And it's it's like, you know, to me, I'd have to say it's it's my favorite thing too. Quick story about someone who I often give a hard time because he's a very good friend of mine, Kai Thomas. You know, internally we have these bets just to motivate each other because we love the healthy competition. And, you know, a month or so ago we bet on who could sell more volume for the month. Right. I think we bet a thousand bucks. 
And then about a week into it, he got a bit cocky and he said, well, let's go double or nothing because I think he had a couple of sales and I took that bet, of course. And then about a week after that, I had put up some pretty big numbers and I, I contacted him and said, look, if you want to bail out now, I'll take half the money today. And he was like severely behind at this point. And his response was, absolutely not. You know, there's, <laughs> there's two weeks to go. And so, you know, that to me is just a, a clear demonstration of the mindset some of our guys have and the mindset that I want to encourage in there, you know? Yeah. And it's important, you know, for you and I are on no shortage in terms of receiving, you know, numerous and dozens and dozens of CVs and resumes, Daily, right? Every single for day. every seat we've got, like, I'm very transparent with the guys. I'm like, look, there's other 20 or 30 other people who want that seat. So you have to earn it every day, right? Because as soon as you start slacking, like you said, you become a leper and you just get very quickly uh, weeded out. Mm. So it's about finding the right people, which is hard. I think it's hard. <laughs> in, it's hard in Australia. It's really hard. Very the caliber hard. of uh, people you have in terms of the labor force, people might not like me saying this, but it's, it's very weak. It's very low. People generally want that you know, lifestyle as opposed to work, uh, you know, uh, balance. And that's all right. For, that's like, fine. It's, it's fine. Courses. But it's not what we want. It's no, not what we're striving towards. 100%. Yeah. And what don't you like about the office? Well, I, I love the office. I love the people in it. Um, I think the thing I struggle with the most is the caliber of, you know, the stakeholders and, and the external parties, you know, I have to deal with from the supplier point of view, just because most of them are bloody useless. And it's not what I'm used to. I'm used to polar opposite. But, you know, there's a flip side to that. You know, I always tell myself because most real estate agents are so useless, the competition's just outright shit. Yeah. Like the I, I worked that out when I was 20 years old, man. Well, the industry I came from, everyone was a genius. So it was really hard <laughs> to like run circles around them. But in this industry, mate, you look at the guys in the industry, they're useless. They're yeah. absolutely useless. It's not difficult to shine. Yeah. No, that's not majority speaking. There's some very good ones. Sure. But you they're, can count them on two hands. You know, I agree. I agree. But but for the most part, yeah, it's, it's not hard to stand out. Correct. Your observation of agents who, who do really, really well, versus the others? What are the characteristics they have and what kind of, what do you notice is the difference? One word, consistency. Consistency. Consistency that translates into the work ethic, they're putting the hours and the time, right? And that translates into the results that they're getting. Yeah. Do you think it's easy to, I mean, so we talk about it being easy to stand out and easy to shine, but do you think it's easy to be, you know, one of these people you talk about counting on two hands? Anything in life that's worth anything of value is not easy to attain. Right. Right. Love that. Yeah. That's something I've, I've always uh, lived by. But I believe if you want it and if you put in the hours and you're consistent with those hours and your dedication to your craft, it's not difficult to shine in this industry. Would you ever list and sell? Um, I've sent you quite a few leads through, through my network. <laughs> I think I've got enough on my plate at the moment. <laughs> Final question. Sure. Where do you think the difference in us comes from? Because there are a couple of things that are similar about us. So when Quite you talk, yeah, 100% you talk about the work ethic, dedication to, to craft, seeing things through. If we really want something, no obstacle is stopping us from getting there. We have all of that in common. But then there's a lot like passions and, and, and likes and what we do in our spare time seems to be like at other ends of the spectrum. But we were raised, same parents, same household. Same environment. Same environment. Like, where does that come from? It's a difficult question. I don't have the right the right answer to that. What do you think? Well, where would you think it comes I think from? that the core values are definitely the same, like you just said. But at the end of the day, people are going to have, uh, you know, different hobbies and, and different, you know, uh, things they want to be partaking in and, you know, different interests, right? And that's just natural. At the end of the day, we're not the same people. We're different people, right? Mm. Thank God for that. Because, <laughs> because I couldn't run this gig without you. Jazz, 
Appreciate your time. It is an honor to work by your side every single day. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise with you. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to Thinking Outside the Box with Gavin Rubenstein. Subscribe now for future episodes.